This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And when we think of great American inventors, names like Edison, Bell, Ford, and Franklin come to mind. But there's another inventor from around the turn of the century who's risen in popularity more recently than all of them. His name, Nikola Tesla. He was an immigrant who became a naturalized citizen in 1891. Here's Jesse with the rest of the story. Born in July of 1856, during a lightning storm in Serbia, Nikola Tesla is best known for his contributions in the design of the modern alternating current electricity supply system. With a name that has become synonymous with physics and engineering, Tesla is also remembered as a mad scientist who died penniless and alone. His experiments covered some of the earliest documented designs for fluorescent lighting, x-ray machines, radio, television, and even drone technology. But it's easy to romanticize a figure like Tesla. His father was a Serbian Orthodox priest. He hoped his son was going to go to the seminary as well. At a certain moment, Tesla convinces his family that he really ought to go study mathematics and then engineering. Here to separate fact from fiction, the man from legend, is biographer W. Bernard Carlson, speaking with permission of Microsoft Research about his book, Tesla, Inventor of the Electrical Age. So he goes to the Johann and Polytechnic Institute in Graz, Austria. There he starts learning about electricity. He basically comes up with the idea after watching a demonstration in a physics class that the thing that the world needed at that point was a motor that did not spark, that had no commutator, that is to say no rotating switch in it, and that that would be a much better motor, it would be an ideal motor. How did he learn how to fully develop that motor? He went to work for several companies related to the Edison organization, one first in Budapest, that was a telephone company, then Paris where they were installing electric lights. He was a very good field engineer. He got transferred from Paris to New York City and he arrived in New York City in 1884. He only stays with the Edison organization about six, eight months and basically strikes out on his own in 1886 and starts up his own laboratory and his own business with some very talented and smart business partners, a man named Charles Peck and a man named Alfred Brown. There were investors, they were Wall Street types. I always imagine that they had this conversation with Tesla where they were looking at him and they said, we don't know what the hell you're talking about, but I love it and I want to make you a star. And, and that Peck and Brown really did, particularly Peck, made Tesla into a star. They really helped him figure out how to patent, promote, and sell. And indeed, when Tesla successfully develops this motor, they sell the patent rights to Westinghouse in 1888, to George Westinghouse. And Tesla, he splits the money with Peck and Brown. And Peck and Brown walk away with five-ninths of the deal. And Tesla gets four-ninths of the royalties that come off that invention. Why? Because Tesla himself knew that these guys, these business guys, had helped make him. Tesla's induction motor and the licensing of the patent by Westinghouse came at a time of extreme competition between electric companies. The three big firms, Westinghouse, Edison, and Thomson-Houston, were all trying to grow while undercutting each other's prices. In comes the financial panic of 1890 and Westinghouse couldn't keep up. Debts were sold to new lenders who wanted cutbacks on Tesla's guaranteed $15,000 per year in royalties on a motor that was basically just a working prototype. 
Tesla agrees to tear up his contract in exchange for remaining on good terms with Westinghouse, and the bet pays off. Six years later, Westinghouse purchased Tesla's patent for a lump sum payment of $216,000. That's somewhere north of $6 million in today's money. Many people say that Tesla had no sense of business. Eh, wrong. Tesla actually had a very clear sense of how he was going to make money off of his inventions. He wasn't going to do it like Edison did by manufacturing light bulbs or generators of all of that. Tesla, his business strategy was patent, promote, sell. Get the intellectual property, promote the living daylights out of the intellectual property, sell it to the highest bidder, move on to the next project. So he had a business strategy. That business strategy meant that the guy had to be a master showman. He had to be able to really get you excited, to get you to believe that what he was going to do was the next really cool thing. And that was part and parcel of the way that he approached creativity. And unlike Edison, who invented towards the marketplace, in other words, never invented something for which he didn't already have worked out who was going to be the customer, Tesla illustrates a very different sort of path, what economists would call a knowledge-driven form of innovation. Tesla's approach to invention was to say that underlying everything out there in the world, whether it is, it, is, it is just out in nature or it's something that people made, is a principle, what the Serbian Orthodox theologians would call the logos, and that the role of the inventor was to discover, discern that principle, and build the invention around that. So if you could come up with the kind of the kernel, the really the heart, the idea of what that technology was about, that's what you would build the invention around, okay? Now, this comes as, as uh, you know, straight out of philosophy, out of the thinkings of Plato. Uh, if you read The Republic, Plato believed that that's what philosophers did, that philosophers found that kind of ultimate truth or underlying principle. The problem is, is not everybody surrounding the inventor or surrounding the philosopher understands what the ideal is about. And so you have to give people an approximation sort of say, well, it's kind of like this or it's kind of like that. The way I approach Tesla is this is, I call those illusions. Now, he's not trying to trick people, but he is trying to conjure up something in your mind that gets you excited so you want to buy the next new technology. Okay, so he could tell you a story. He could use a metaphor. He could invoke certain values. And the interesting part about his life then is this tension back and forth between ideal and illusion. I can picture this wonderful new way of doing things build an electric motor around rotating magnetic field, but how do I then explain that to some businessman who may not know anything about electricity? I've got to tell him a good story. I've got to engage that, that investor in some way. And when we come back, more of the life of Nikola Tesla. And what an interesting story thus far. And what a way of thinking about things. Patent, promote, and sell. And that was the process for Nikola Tesla. Patent, you got to innovate and invent, and around these principles, promote. My goodness, it sounds like he's almost P.T. Barnum. He's got to get out there and really push it, dazzle people, and then sell it, and then on to the next big idea. We're learning more about one of the great inventors in American history. Nikola Tesla's story continues here on Our American Story. Mm. 
return to Our American Stories and a brief history of Nikola Tesla. And here again is Jesse Edwards and Professor Bernard Carlson. When we left off, Nikola Tesla had sold his AC induction motor to Westinghouse Electric. When they hit financial trouble, Tesla let them out of their contract of $15,000 per year in royalties, only to have them turn around and buy the patent six years later for two hundred sixteen grand, or upwards of $6 million bucks adjusted for inflation. Now Nikola Tesla had the funding to do whatever he wanted. And whatever he wanted, he did. He invents the Tesla coil in 1891, an antenna that's used to produce a high-voltage, low-current, high-frequency arc that moves through the air like lightning. Here again is biographer W. Bernard Carlson. Tesla leaves New York, goes to Colorado Springs, and there builds an experimental station, the largest, probably the largest Tesla coil that was ever built, and he was able to get sparks off of this magnifying transmitter, this giant Tesla coil, on the order of about 100 105 feet. Tesla discovered that when he held a fluorescent light next to the Tesla coil, it would light up even without being plugged into anything. He was convinced that there was a way to use this energy. Imagine lighting an entire house with this wireless electricity near the turn of the century. Entire neighborhoods, towns, cities. As far as he was concerned, if I could get one light bulb to light up, no problem. I can get 100 to work, and I'm not going to lose any energy. He, he Basically, because he took the view that if I can imagine the ideal in my mind, I can see it in my mind's eye, and I get just enough evidence from the real world that it's working. I can get one light bulb to work, I'm home free. It's going to turn out. Okay? So one of the scary parts about Colorado Springs is this, is, and there's like 500 pages of notes from Colorado Springs, and you're going through, I'm going through them, and I'm reading all the newspaper articles from that time period, and I suddenly realize... There are no witnesses. Nobody saw anything other than Tesla and like one assistant in Colorado Springs. Okay? So he basically said, I did it, but he has no proof. Tesla was convinced that he had sent electricity not only across the cow pasture, but around the world. Over the next decade, he conducts public demonstrations where he would light a bulb from across the stage but he never really found any success in making that commercial product out of his findings. So he goes back to New York to look for investors for an idea he has in the world of wireless communications. In March of 1901, J.P. Morgan gives Tesla 150 k that's $4.5 million in today's dollars, for a 51% share of any future patents. Tesla takes the deal and uses the money to build what he called Wardenclyffe Tower, 65 miles from New York City. Tesla had become convinced that he could transmit electricity around the world by using the Earth itself as the conductor. The massive Tesla coil stood 187 feet tall. Everybody gets so worked up about the tower. The secret is the hole, the well beneath the tower. Okay, so under here, is a shaft 120 feet deep and at the bottom of the shaft were 16 pipes that he basically pushed out underneath the water table and that was as tesla said was to get a grip on the earth and shake it in other words i'm going to deliver electromagnetic energy into the earth and this is how i'm going to send power all over the world okay and you know he really assumed that that if he 
got money from J.P. Morgan. He gave the right sort of newspaper interviews. He built this fabulous laboratory. He lived at the Waldorf Astoria. You know, did everything right that the results were going to follow. One of the things he didn't take into account, as far as Tesla was concerned, an upstart Italian named Guillermo Marconi. Marconi started working on radio in about 1895, and from the get-go, Marconi's insight was, what we're going to do here is we're going to do wireless telegraphy. So in fall 1901, Marconi, and Marconi is always looking over his shoulder, where's Tesla going? Where's Tesla going? And he decides that even though Tesla has already predicted in 1899 that I, Tesla, am going to be the first to send a message across the Atlantic Ocean, Marconi says... <laughs> Let him, fart around, pardon me, let him mess around with what he's doing on the North Shore of Long Island. I'm going to get this sucker done. And he succeeds in sending the letter S in Morse code, and they detect it. You took $150,000 from J.P. Morgan. You built this fancy laboratory, you know, and this guy Marconi scoops you. So what do you say to J.P. Morgan? Well, J.P., Mr. Morgan, I'm really sorry I took the money, and I, I, I won't happen again. Not Tesla. Tesla basically comes back roaring in January 1902 and he writes Morgan a letter and he says, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a world telegraphy system. Build a few power plants in major cities like New York, and each one of those is going to collect all sorts of information about stock prices, newspaper stories. The Associated Press is already in existence. Reuters is already basically sending news, news stories over the wires, over telegraph wires. We'll do fax messages. We'll do personal messages. We'll do telephone calls. We'll do everything. Okay, And we're going to pump it into the earth. And those stations, as fast as they receive the news, they're going to pour it into the ground, which will spread instantly all over the earth. And so Morgan just sort of says, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not putting any more money into this. And so Tesla's left high and dry after 1903 with no additional money from Morgan. Tesla basically gets himself hoisted on a petard by giving Morgan 51% of the patent rights when he does the original deal. That makes it a mess for getting other, any other investors. Now, before you beat up Tesla too badly about this, Marconi wins the Nobel Prize in 1915 for his work on radio, and he devotes the Nobel Prize speech to basically saying, um, Radio waves, they, they, they go through the atmosphere like this. Or maybe they go through the atmosphere like that. He didn't really know. Okay? They didn't understand the ionosphere, what we understand today. You have the transmitter. You send up the radio waves to the antenna. The energy radiates off the antenna, goes across space. Beep, 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 beep. Hits an antenna on the receiver. The receiver detects the signal. And to complete the circuit, both the receiver and the transmitter are grounded. Tesla said, no, 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 no. We're going to do it exactly the opposite way. We're going to pump energy into the ground, oscillating electric currents. They are going to travel through the earth, come to a ground connection at the receiver's end, and then they are going to go back up to the receiver. The energy is going to be used to uh, send messages or run lights or, or motors, and you're going to have some sort of connection in the sky that completes the circuit. So exactly the opposite of what everybody else was doing. So what did Tesla contribute to radio? And yes, the Supreme Court did hand down a decision where they used Tesla patents to basically, in an antitrust case, stick it to RCA. Okay? That doesn't mean that the Supreme Court decided that Tesla invented radio. This is, this is one of these little legal points that's, that's worthy of just mentioning. 
But if you want to talk about who looked at electromagnetic waves, radio waves, and said, there's an opportunity there, Tesla is your guy. Okay, well ahead of Marconi, he's thinking about what to do. And what he really underlines, which is, I think, an important lesson, is, is how hard it is to disintroduce a disruptive technology. Okay, we sort of, ah, well, the Wright brothers invented the airplane in 1903. <laughs> we're all set. You know, we're going to, you know, we can have commercial air travel, you know, just like that. Okay, there's a long way from the Wright brothers to passenger airlines. The work that engineers and entrepreneurs do to make that happen is real work. Tesla did two big things in his life. He, he contributed two technologies that disrupted the way that people did business, created entirely new industries, changed the way people lived their lives every day. The first one was the alternating current motor, which he worked on in, uh, in the 1880s. And then in the 1890s, he worked on the wireless transmission of power. In other words, he was a rival in the first story with Thomas Edison, in the second story with Marconi. Okay. In both cases, you've got this wonderful opportunity in Tesla in that you've got a wonderful success story, and then you have a disruptive technology that didn't turn out so well. The arrow moves from the inside of the inventor out to the marketplace, out to the world. Inventors like Tesla have an idea inside, and they want to order the world out there. It's a subjective process rather than an objective process where you go out and you measure things and you, you, you study the marketplace, you study the phenomenon on the basis of what you see at the benchtop or what you see in your market surveys, you act on that. Tesla is, is, is moving in the opposite direction. We see time and time again that for him to succeed with his major technologies, he's got to tell a good story. He's got to invoke a metaphor. He's got to fire your imagination. Arthur C. Clarke in the 1970s said, any sufficiently advanced technology will always be perceived as magic. Tesla understood that. And above all, Tesla succeeded or failed because when he got or not, didn't get the right kind of partnership. And a partnership between technology, the stuff that Tesla would do, and the entrepreneurs that could help create and advance that technology. Great job as always, Jesse, and special thanks to W. Bernard Carlson and Microsoft Research. And by the way, Carlson's book, Tesla, Inventor of the Electric Age, get it at Amazon.com. And he happens to be a professor of engineering and society at the University of Virginia, where I went to law school. And what an interesting subject. Nikola Tesla's story, here on Our American Story. Return to Our American Stories, and up next, a story from, of all places, the Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., a place famous for being the scene of President Abraham Lincoln's assassination. But most of us don't know much more about the story of Lincoln's death. Well, until now. Mike Robinson is a volunteer reenactor at Ford's Theater and tells the unknown story through the eyes of Washington's then Superintendent of Police, A.C. Richards, and Mike graciously shared with us the audio from one of his actual reenactments. Here's Mike as Superintendent Richards. Good morning. A bit more enthusiasm, if you please. Good morning. Good morning. That's much better. My name is A.C. Richards. I was a superintendent of Metropolitan Police from 1864 until 1878. 
You may address me as chief. My office was just across the street at 10th and 8th Street, and I was in the audience that night of Friday, April 14th, 1865, sitting just there. Would you be at all interested in what I recall from that evening? Very well, we have some housekeeping measures to take care of first. Those of you who have those devices you call cell phones, take them out and turn them off. They have not yet been invented. And the same, of course, is true of flash photography. Now, anyone who has questions about this incident or wishes to discuss President Lincoln, please feel free to meet with me before the stage after the presentation. And you should consider this. This may well be your last opportunity to talk to someone who was actually there. There are not many of us left. So I take it the remainder of you are visitors to our fair city, are you not? Yes. Well, the Washington you see today is much different than the Washington of my time. In fact, Charles Dickens came here in the 1840s and he said, Washington is a city of magnificent intentions. It has grand boulevards, that started nothing and go nowhere. Indeed, we had not a single paved road. In fact, the avenue just down here, which was intended to connect the executive branch with the legislative branch, was unpaved. It was built on a floodplain, and every time it rained, it would flood out. There was either too much mud or too much dust. So most of us who lived here used Death Street just up here as our major crosstown route. That would become important to the assassins on that evening. Now today, if you walk south of the avenue, you will encounter Constitution Avenue. That was not there at all in my time. That was the Washington Canal, which had been built to connect the Upper Potomac with the Eastern Branch. But by 1860, it had become an open sore. It was not at all unusual to walk south of the avenue and find cow carcasses floating in the canal. In fact, in 1860, it would not have been at all unusual to go out here on 10th Street and find chickens and hogs wandering the street. They were a sewage system. In 1860, our entire population was a mere 75,000 people, and none of us locked our doors at night. And then the war came, and our lives were changed forever. By 1865, our population had grown to well over 200,000 people, and we all locked our doors at night. The people who came here during those war years were pettifoggers and scoundrels. They were people trying to get something out of the federal government. I'm sure that's no longer true in your time, is it? But they required a great deal of entertainment, so Washington became a very exciting place to live. By 1865, we had over 3,500 saloons. If you did not like the Star Saloon on this side of Ford Theater, you could well go to the Greenback on this side. We had more than 400. How shall I phrase this? Houses of ill fame. In fact, early in the war, one of the generals who was here liked to segregate all of the ladies of the night on the south side of the avenue. The general's name, by the way, was Hooker. We called that Hooker's Division. Now, those of you who have ridden our modern transportation system have undoubtedly encountered a stop called Federal Triangle. In my time, that area was called Murder Bay, and you dare not go there any time of night or day for you would not return. Indeed, those war years were very exciting years, and there was no more exciting time than that week in April of 1865. That week started with Palm Sunday, April 9th, 1865, when Robert E. Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia 
and we started to think that perhaps this terrible time was finally ending. Now, I know that many of you in the audience think of our War of the Rebellion as a remarkably romantic period. Beautiful ladies in hoop skirts and handsome, brave young gentlemen in military uniforms. And indeed, we all enthusiastically marched off to war in 61. After all, this war would last for only three months, or so they told us. What fools were we? By 1865, we had all seen the elephant. By 1865, we knew what war was. By 1865, we had lost more than 750,000 of our finest young men, so many young men. This was a whole generation of future leaders that have been taken from us. There was hardly a household in the nation, north or south, that was untouched by mourning. It was a cruel, cruel war. So you can imagine how we felt that following Monday when we learned that Robert E. Lee had surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia. Now, there were still over 100,000 Confederates in the field, and the Confederate government had not yet been captured. Everyone knew that Bobby Lee had the most important army in the Confederacy, and we started to think that perhaps this was the beginning of the end. So a group of us Lincoln men, and I must admit, I was a Lincoln man then, I am a Lincoln man now, and I shall always be a Lincoln man. A group of us got together and we marched up to the White House to serenade the president. As we were singing, he came out on the balcony and we shouted, speech, speech. There was no one better speechifying than Abe Lincoln. And we expected something very special this evening. After all, he was the man who had led us through this terrible time. But old Abe, he hated to speak off the cuff. He told us if we would come back the following evening, he would be sure to have a few words prepared to say to us. Of course, we did that. Well, I must tell you that he surprised us by what he had to say. It was not at all an inspirational speech. It was a very technical talk about how he would reunite the nation, what would come to be called Reconstruction. He said that he would emancipate all the slaves. Now, that certainly surprised no one. As many of you know, in January 63, he had issued the Emancipation Proclamation which freed all the slaves in secession territory. And indeed, by February 65, we had passed the 13th Amendment. It had not yet been ratified, but we were well on the way to eradicating this terrible blot, the blot of slavery, which lay upon our Constitution. What he said, in addition, was that he felt that intelligent black men and those who fought for the Union cause deserve the right to vote. Now, he had certainly come a long way from the time when he was advocating colonizing all blacks outside of the nation. But upon reflection, it seemed only just. More than 200,000 brave black men fought for the Union cause. Two-thirds of them were former slaves. They were fighting for their families, but they were also fighting for our country. Without them, we could not have won the war. Had they not earned the right to vote? I put it to you, had they not earned the right to vote? Many of us thought so, but not all. There were three men standing on the periphery of the crowd, one dressed all in black, turned to the other two, and he said, and now, by God, I'll put him through. That's the last speech he'll ever make. And that man, of course, was John Wilkes Booth. And the story of what Booth did next, well, you're about to hear that after the break. And by the way, it's so true, 750,000 
were wounded or killed in the Civil War, and not a household more than likely was left unscathed, north or south. And brothers, fellow brothers and sisters, were torn apart by this war. And West Point grads who went to college together, got trained together, ended up, well, fighting against one another in this most important war that, well, healed, or at least started the healing of the original sin of this country, slavery. When we come back, more of this story, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, here on Our American Story. continue here with our American stories and the story of President Abraham Lincoln's assassination at Ford's Theater is told by their incredible volunteer reenactor Mike Robinson. Mike tells the story through the eyes of then police chief A.C. Richards and picks up the story with the surrender of Robert E. Lee's Confederate Army earlier that week. Well the remainder of that week was one of happy celebration. We held a grand illumination on Thursday. We were awakened by cannons booming all over town. Many of the windows in our homes were broken, but no one seemed to care. There was a grand old glory hung from the post office building. Across the street at the patent office, the building was lit by 5,000 candles. It lit the entire universe. That evening, as I walked up the avenue to the Capitol to watch fireworks, people would grab and embrace me. We were so happy that this terrible time was finally ending. So the following day, Friday, April 14th, 1865, when I learned that Abraham Lincoln would be here at Ford's Theater that evening, I decided I should be too. Now this was Good Friday. I would not have normally come to the theater on that evening. Indeed, I came that evening not to see the play Our American Cousin. I came to see that great man, Abraham Lincoln. Well, that day dawned rainy and cold. Mrs. Lincoln would testify afterwards that she and the president had made some time for themselves on the afternoon of that day. This had been a long war, and the Lincolns had very seldom had the opportunity to be alone together. They took the opportunity this afternoon. She said as they were riding up the avenue to the Navy Yard, she found that the president was happier than she'd ever before seen him. He turned to her and he said, Mary, I consider this day the war is finally at an end. And between this terrible war and the death of our dear Willie, we have been miserable for much too long. We must promise ourselves that in the future, we will be happy. Consider this. That may have been the happiest moment of Abraham Lincoln's entire life. Well, the play was scheduled to commence at 8 that evening. The presidential party was nowhere in sight. The show started anyway. It was not until about half past eight that President Lincoln and his party came into the building. They climbed the spiral staircase and were seen walking across the dress circle. The leading lady stopped the play. The band rose up and played Hail to the Chief, and the audience went mad. This was the man who had saved our nation. We watched him as he walked around the dress circle and went through this yellow door. He next appeared just here. 
turned to us, smiled at us. Obviously, he was enjoying us as much as we enjoyed him. Duffed us at, and the play recommenced. About nine that evening, another actor in this drama came into the theater, but not through the front door this time. He entered through the stage door, dropped through a trap door, proceeded beneath the stage, remember the play was ongoing, emerged from a trap door on this side, went down the alley, and into the Star Saloon. He would fortify himself for the dirty work yet to come. Came back into the theater shortly before 10 that evening. He was seen talking to some of the patrons in the back of the theater. Can anyone tell me what Wilkes Booth's profession was? He was an actor indeed, and this was the largest role he'd ever played. This evening he was playing on a world stage. He was not about to hide anything he would do this evening. He sought to achieve his place in history. Shortly after 10, he climbed the spiral staircase, walked around the dress circle to a man sitting just outside the presidential door. The man's name was Charles Forbes. He was a presidential messenger. Booth walked up to Forbes, reached into his pocket, and presented Forbes with a calling card upon which it said, J. Wilkes Booth. Remember, he was not trying to hide what he was about to do. In fact, I have often wondered since that evening, had Forbes shown the calling card to President Lincoln, would he have invited Booth into the box? Lincoln had seen Booth on this very stage in 63 and admired his acting talent. Had the president seen that calling card, would he have invited his own assassin into the box? We shall never know the answer to that question, but we do know that Forbes allowed Booth through this yellow door into the outer vestibule of the box. Booth closed the door and propped it shut. He was waiting for something he knew would take place during the third act, second scene of this play. The play was Our American Cousin. It was a comedy about a bumpkin from Vermont who went to England to marry an English girl, and then her mother found that he had no money. Well, you can imagine what happened to that marriage. There would be a point in this play, third act, second scene, when the leading man would be the only man on stage, leaving it unobstructed for an escape. He has just been told by his potential mother-in-law that he cannot marry his fiancée, and he addresses her as she walks off stage. Not familiar with the manners of good society, hey? Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, old gal. You psychologizing old man trap? At which point the audience burst into laughter. That was Booth's cue. He entered the inner box, approached the president rapidly from behind, reached into his pocket, pulled out a 44 caliber Derringer, and fired once into the back of the president's head. The first man to realize what had happened was Major Rathbone. He'd been sitting in the corner. He jumped up and struggled with Booth. Booth threw the gun down, pulled out a dagger, and tried to stab Rathbone in the heart. Rathbone defended himself, but he was sliced to the bone. Booth leapt to the stage, landed awkwardly on his right leg, went down on that knee. As he rose up, he brandished a bloody dagger above his head, turned to the audience, and shouted, Sick, Sipper Tyrannus! It's the state motto of Virginia. We had used it in our war against old King George. It means us always to tyrants. Not coincidentally, it's what's reputed to have been said upon the assassination of Julius Caesar. That was Booth's statement. He was saving the country by assassinating a tyrant. He was Brutus to Lincoln's Julius Caesar. He ran across stage and out the stage door. Major Rathbone came to the edge of the balcony and shouted, Stop that man! Stop that man! That's when I first realized something was terribly amiss. I left my seat in the audience and made my way to the stage. That whole period of time from when the gun was fired until when I arrived on stage was only slightly more than a minute, but it seemed an eternity. 
I searched the darkened stage for the culprit, but could find no one. Eventually, I made my way to the stage door and opened it just in time to hear the sound of receding hoofbeats. It was not until I came back into the theater that I was told that the president had been assassinated. I was the first officer on the scene, so I immediately started the investigation. The first person I interviewed was Miss Laura Keene. She was the star of the show. She told me, I know not who shot the president, but the man who ran across stage was Wilkes Booth. We knew within half an hour that John Wilkes Booth was the assassin. Subsequent to that, I talked to Mr. Ferguson, who had been sitting just here. Ferguson owned the Greenback Saloon on this side of Ford's Theater. He told me he had frequently seen Booth associating with Davy Harrell, Louis Payne, George Atzerott, and John Surratt. Shortly thereafter, we learned that this was a much larger conspiracy. We heard that an attempt had been made on the Secretary of State's life. This was not just to assassinate our beloved president, it, it was to destroy our very nation. We launched the largest manhunt in American history to run the miscreants to ground 12 days later outside of Port Royal, Virginia. Booth was caught in a tobacco barn in the early hours of the morning of April 26, 1865, long before sunrise. The cavalry set the barn afire to force him out. He could be seen moving about inside, when he reached for his rifle and headed for the door, Sergeant Boston Corbett, fearing for the lives of his men, pulled his pistol, took aim, and fired once, striking Booth in the neck and severing his spine. He would die within two hours, a slow, miserable death appropriate to a dastardly assassin. But do you know what his final words were? Tell my mother I die for my country. In his own mind, he was the hero of this tragedy he himself had authored. He had saved the country by assassinating a tyrant. John Wilkes Booth sought to achieve a place in history, which indeed he did. But do any of you think of John Wilkes Booth as a great American hero? He shall be condemned through eternity as the assassin of Abraham Lincoln. That night of Friday, April 14th, 1865, our beloved president lay dying in his box. He was attended by three physicians. They concluded almost immediately that the wound would be mortal, but a theater was not an appropriate place for such a man to die. They carried him around the dress circle, down the spiral staircase, and out into the street, looking for a place to make him as comfortable as possible in the few hours he had remaining to him. One of the boarders at the Peterson House just across the street recognized their dilemma and invited them in there. They brought the president in, took him straight back to the back bedroom, where at 7.22 the next morning, April 15th, 1865, Abraham Lincoln passed into history. As he died, a light cold rain began to fall over Washington. It was as if the very heavens wept at the loss of our beloved president. I shall always remember that terrible evening. It started with a small comedy and ended as a large tragedy. Good day to you all. And a special thanks to our regular contributor, John Elfner, who loves history and teaches history, for bringing us this story. And if you have story ideas for us, make sure to send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Because we'll tell them. And we particularly, if you know a museum or some person in charge of things like this, and all over this great country, 
There's every kind of museum imaginable, and we love the passion that's exhibited here by Mike Robinson. And again, he's the man who's the volunteer reenactor at Ford's Theater. And he tells this story with great passion. He also worked at Mount Vernon, so he has great knowledge of Washington's home. And he also, from what I understand, knows quite a bit about the Underground Railroad as well. So you may be hearing more from Mike Robinson. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and today we're diving into one of my favorite books of the year, and we do a lot of books here on the show. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and see all that we do, and while we're there, or while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter, and again, that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. You'll get our five best stories of the week, and the book is Kicks by Nicholas Smith, and it's all about the history of sneakers. Before we start the story, Nicholas, I want to read two things from your prologue. Quote, sneakers can help us stand out or blend in. They can be the item we build our outfits up from or an afterthought we slip on before running out the door. And every sneaker we wear says something about us in both subtle and not so subtle ways. This was something I never actually thought about until I did. Was this true with you? And what led you to write this history of the sneaker? Well, I'm not what you would call uh, a traditional sneakerhead. I don't have a closet full of 50 different rare sneakers that are, you know, limited edition or things like this. Uh, I approach this story from a runner's perspective. I, uh, running is my hobby, so most of my sneakers are kind of running sneakers. And the more I researched the story, the more I kind of saw the appeal of shoes as a fashion item. It's not something I really sat down to to think about, you know, like many people I had maybe just one pair of casual sneakers to to go outside and go to uh, the grocery store with. But as I researched more into this, I started to see kind of the appeal of having a sneaker for this outfit or a sneaker for that outfit. Here's a very common item that for some people, it is it is the basis of their outfit and everything that they're building up from kind of rests on the sneaker. And for other people, it's the complete afterthought. It's the last thing that they throw on before going out the door. And I think that's that's really the, the most interesting thing about sneakers. Indeed. And my 13-year-old girl, the poor shoe people, because she has almost no shoes. She and all of her friends have 8, 10, and 12 pairs of sneakers for precisely the reasons you discussed, Nicholas. So it's an interesting trend, what's happening with younger people. You also wrote this in the prologue. The history of the sneaker is, in a sense, the recent history of the United States. I thought that was such an absurd statement when I read it, Nicholas. And that is until I started reading the book and the story. So let's start off at the beginning with the story of Charles Goodyear. Talk about this American innovator and businessman, because it's quite a story. We can't really tell the uh, the history of the sneaker or really many of the other objects that are everyday objects without telling the history of industry. And to go back to the beginning, to the Industrial Revolution, uh, Charles Goodyear was an inventor 
kind of a, a tinkerer, a person who would be stuck in his basement trying to solve the problem of rubber. Now, the problem of rubber in the early uh, Industrial Revolution was it was very susceptible to temperature. Uh, when it was cold, it would turn brittle. When it was hot, it would melt. So as you can imagine, rubber products weren't very versatile. Uh, Goodyear uh, had the idea that rubber could be stabilized. And through his years and years of tinkering with different mixtures, different ways of preparing it, he perfected vulcanized rubber, which uh, is more resilient uh, to temperature. Now, without vulcanized rubber, we couldn't have, of course, uh, sneaker soles, but we also couldn't have uh, car tires or you, you know, so many different parts uh, that we rely on uh, today. So this was kind of a very uh, important uh, invention that Goodyear stumbled upon. Indeed it was, but before sneakers could take off, we also needed the idea of leisure time. That, too, would develop as America and the world industrialized. Yeah, people forget that the concept of the weekend is kind of a a very new concept. Now, kind of the the forerunner to the weekend and vacations for the working class was uh, called Wakes Weeks. Now, in Britain, during the Industrial Revolution, they would have to close the factories periodically to uh, you know, maintenance the machines and do service work. And during this time, the workers would take their holidays, or, or what we would call holidays. What was once the area of just the upper class, just having uh, so much free time that you could devote to hobbies or different things, was finally starting to trickle down to everyone else. And to fill that free time, we saw the growth of sports, of games, of hobbies, of many different things. And let's talk about one of those sports. Let's talk about James Naismith. Who was he, for folks who aren't avid basketball fans, and why is he such a big figure in your story? So James Naismith, of course, was the inventor of basketball. He was also a teacher at a uh, a YMCA. Now, as the story goes, it was a very cold, very dark winter near the turn of the century, and uh, his students were stuck inside, and he didn't know what to do with them. You know, those days, physical activity was calisthenics, aerobics, gymnastics, not something that's very competitive. So Naismith nailed up two peach baskets, one on each side of his gymnasium, and he had a a soccer ball with him. And he had, you know, two teams try to get that basketball into the peach basket on either side. What he found was his his students took to it very quickly. He wrote down the rules and had them published in an academic journal, and this eventually spread to other YMCAs and then to other schools and then to other uh, universities across the country. So the game of basketball kind of benefited from having that set of rules travel around so quickly. Who's Chuck Taylor? We've seen his name stitched on Converse. He was a big player in your story. Now, Chuck Taylor isn't one of those figures uh, like that, that was invented for a brand. He was an actual person. Converse was a company that's it's been around 100 years now today. But when uh, Chuck Taylor joined the company, it was the 1920s. Uh, he had just finished a very short career as a professional basketball player. And uh, when I say professional in those days, it's kind of more what we would consider uh, a semi-professional uh, basketball player. But he wasn't very distinguished, even among 
the players of the day. But he did have a good knowledge of the game, and this is what he brought to Converse when he was a salesman. He would travel from town to town putting on these basketball clinics. He's kind of the, uh, the Johnny Appleseed figure of basketball. So in every town that he would visit, every clinic he would put on in schools or universities, he would teach the basics, he would teach some tricks, and, you know, of course, there was that little marketing message in there that, you know, in order to play basketball really well, you would need these Converse All-Star shoes. And after years of success, he decided to name the All-Star the Chuck Taylor shoe. So this is why, to this day, you, you see his name stitched on Converse Chuck Taylors everywhere in the world. And when we come back, more with Nicholas Smith. The book Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. is Our American Stories, and we're back with Nick Smith talking about his book, Kicks. We were just learning about the origin of Chuck Taylor's sneakers, shoes named after a salesman who was basketball's Johnny Appleseed. Can you think of a single product that's named after the salesman in a company, not the CEO, not the patriarch, the salesman? Because I racked my brain, Nicholas, and I couldn't think of one. You know, off the top of my head, no, and I'm sure if I thought about it for another couple hours, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't think of any. And that kind of speaks to the marketing genius that uh, Chuck Taylor had. One of the other things that Converse did to kind of develop the game further is they published this uh, yearbook, kind of a who's who book of basketball of the day. So if your team wanted to be in the yearbook, you just had to send a photo of your, your team in and where you played and, and who all the players were. And of course, you had to wear the, uh, the Converse uh, you know, shoes in, in the, uh, the picture. But uh, in this book, Chuck Taylor would say, you know, here's, the, here's some tricks of the game. Here are the best players playing the game, and, you know, traveling from town to town. He really had an eye for who was good, who was an up-and-coming college player and Coaches called him for advice on, well, who should my scouts go after? So he was kind of a, a self-developed expert in the game, and this earned him a place in the Basketball Hall of Fame. So, you know, here we have another example of a, a salesman not only having his name on a shoe, but ending up in a sports Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's remarkable how he deployed every tool in the toolkit to sell. And actually, it just sounded to me from reading your book that he didn't think of himself as a salesman, but an evangelist for this ministry called basketball. Exactly. And, you know, part of that comes from his connection to the game. Because he was an actual player, he saw maybe a different side of it that a normal salesman uh, wouldn't see. So there was a, uh, a level of expertise that also attracted people to these clinics. Here you would hear uh, a professional player really tell you how to play. Here, here are the real tricks. Here's what, here's what the people are actually wearing. So it, it did have a, uh, a certain degree of expertise when he went around. That's great. And let's talk about a track coach who had a tremendous impact on the world of sneakers, sports, and the culture. Let's talk about Bill Bowerman. He coached nine sub-four-minute milers at the University of Oregon, the most of any coach in America, four NCAA team championships, 24 NCAA individual titles, and coached 33 Olympians. Some call him the Bear Bryant, the Nick Saban of the running world. 
That's perfectly accurate. He really knew the sport in and out, but uh, he would do experiments with everything having to do with running. He would, in his backyard, mix up different combinations of rubber to create uh, you know, a good running surface to run on. He would make the clothes that his runners wore the, out of the lightest material he could find, but he also uh, experimented with shoes. You know, in those days, there weren't uh, as many choices for running shoes as we have today. He surmised that the best running shoe was probably one that was made specifically for the athlete. You didn't waste any extra material. It was it, it fit perfectly. It, it didn't have an extra ounce on it that it uh, that it didn't need to have. So he would use his runners as kind of human guinea pigs while making his uh, his own shoe concoctions. Over time, he got a little better and, and better at it. And uh, this caught the eye of one of his uh, former students, a uh, runner by the name of Phil Knight. Now, Phil Knight had just returned from a, uh, a trip to Japan with a business idea. And uh, while he was in Japan, uh, he met with the executives of a company called Onitsuka Tiger. Now, we, we kind of know this company more as ASICs today. Uh, but in the uh, the 1960s, they were, they were tiger shoes. They were still, you know, fairly good shoes at the time. And Phil Knight says to his old coach, look, we can make, you know, some money importing these shoes, these Japanese shoes to the U.S. market because they are of similar quality to the Adidas and Puma uh, shoes that are out there, but of course cost much less. So of course, Bowerman jumped at the chance not only to, uh, you know, to, to have a little side money, but to also have the ear of a shoe company that would finally listen to him. So of course, over time, their company, which is called Blue Ribbon Sports, uh, gained more and more success, and they eventually spun off to a company that we know today as Nike. Now, the bones of Nike are built into, of course, running shoes and making kind of the, the perfect running shoe. So it, uh, it, it definitely came from an area of expertise. Indeed. And, and talk about a breakfast that changed Bowerman's life and waffles. Bowerman coached in Oregon. And uh, as, as we know, Oregon and the Pacific Northwest is very wet. You know, the running shoes of the day, the traction wasn't, wasn't great. Not, not enough to really grip mud, not enough to go over concrete very easily. And Bowerman was also obsessed with, with coming up some, some sort of pattern for the soul. And as the story goes, he's in the kitchen one Sunday. His wife is out. He sees the waffle iron, then he has an idea. It's like, wait a minute, the waffle pattern is the pattern I'm looking for. So he pours some molten rubber in the waffle iron, it gets stuck, and then he goes to the store to, to buy another waffle iron and, and you know does his test. And finally, he comes up with the, the waffle sole. Now, of course, the, the actual sole made for the shoes isn't made in the waffle iron. <laughs> the uh, waffle iron just provided the, the seed of the idea. But the, the waffle sole shoes proved to be a good enough grip for practically any surface. So this was kind of the, the beginning of the, uh, the jogging shoe uh, as we know it. And although jogging seems common and normal now, it wasn't always so, was it? You know, running as a hobby wasn't really, uh, wasn't really a thing. You know, if you went outside in the 50s and 60s and saw uh, someone running, it, uh, it would kind of strike you as odd. You know, the only, the only people that might go out jogging were you know, boxers training and kind of the, the local town nutcase, and that was it. <laughs> but in the 50s and 60s and, and going on to the 70s, 
it started to become kind of a, a new trendy thing to go outside and run just for exercise. When Bill Barman traveled to New Zealand with his uh, relay team, the coach there for the New Zealand Olympic team said, you know, why, why don't you come on a race uh, or just, just a Sunday run with us? So he says, okay, you know, track coach going on a run. Okay, it, it seems easy. But uh, what he discovered was he, Barman couldn't keep up with, uh, with any of the people, and some of them were much, much older than him. They blazed by them. And he was wondering, okay, why... Why is it that I can't keep up with these people, but they seem to just go for miles and miles? And the New Zealand track coach had an exercise regimen called jogging. So Bowerman took this idea, brought it back with him to, to Oregon, and kind of started the uh, very small jogging boom uh, in Oregon. So go across the coast to New York now. So another jogging boom was taking shape. Fred Lebo was working in the fashion industry in Manhattan, but he was also uh, an early jogger. And he is known today as the, the founder of the New York City Marathon. The early New York City Marathons just went around Central Park a few times. But uh, Fred Lebo uh, had the idea that uh, by expanding the marathon across all five boroughs of the city, it can really kind of act as a, uh, an advertisement uh, for New York, not just an advertisement for the city, but also as an advertisement for jogging. You know, one person was saying that the best singles bar in New York was Central Park because you can just go up to uh, someone else that was jogging and strike up a conversation. So what uh, Fred Lebo did and what uh, Bill Bowerman did was kind of start an exercise movement, kind of the first exercise fad uh, that the U.S. has known. Dr. Ken Cooper is my personal doctor. I'm pretty fortunate to have him uh, for my annual checkups. And he wrote a book called Aerobics, which you talk about here as well. You know, I talked to Dr. Cooper just before this interview. I said, you know, what, what should I talk to Nicholas Smith about? And he reminded me that back when he was doing his work, and he had trained NASA astronauts, uh, worked in the Air Force, a, a remarkable doctor. But he was on this quest to prove that exercise, jogging, aerobics, would actually increase life expectancies and health. And he wanted to get people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s to start running. The medical establishment came down on him like a ton of bricks, that 50-year-olds would be dying in the streets, that this was a terrible idea. Well, there was kind of this thought that, uh, you know, any, any sort of physical activity was uh, dangerous if you weren't, quote-unquote, the, the right person. And uh, this is kind of something that... Uh, that uh, I'll, I'll come back to this New Zealand story that uh, Bill Barman went on when he saw, you know, a man come to his aid that was not only older than him, uh, but had survived a heart attack. Uh, this kind of, you know, woke something up in his mind that, you know, this, this cardiovascular exercise was in fact good for you. And, you know, what, what Dr. Cooper found was it, uh, you know, it doesn't matter really if you're young or old, if you're active, it does add years to your life. And when we come back, more of our conversation with Nicholas Smith, his terrific book, Kicks, the great American story of sneakers.
This is Our American Stories. We're back with Nicholas Smith, author of Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. And we were just talking about the rise of jogging and the start of the New York City Marathon. By the way, that first New York City Marathon you point out in the book had 55 finishers. That's, uh, that's quite, quite a movement from 55 to what we watch today on national television. Let's talk about women who were long excluded from running in marathons, even up to 1966. You tell one story of Bobby Gibb, who was 23. She entered the Boston Marathon, got her envelope, hoping to see an acceptance and a racing number. Instead, she found a note from the director of the race. I'm going to read it to you. Women aren't allowed and furthermore are not physiologically able. Talk about the reasons women were excluded from marathons and talk about one woman, Catherine Switzer, who changed everything. So uh, women weren't just uh, excluded from marathons. Uh, They were pretty much excluded from uh, every other sport all through the 70s. And, uh, you know, even... uh, college sports and women's colleges were uh, so segregated in the 10s and the 20s that men weren't even allowed to to come and watch unless you were a a relative of the women playing. It was considered uh, unladylike for uh, women to exert physical uh, activity. Now, um, that slowly and thankfully began to change in the 60s and the 70s. And Bobby Gibb was one of those people who kind of said, okay, I'm, I'm going to, to run the Boston Marathon, whether or not women are allowed to run or not. And, uh, you know, it did, uh, it did have some, uh, some pushback. And one of the people that uh, saw that pushback firsthand was uh, Catherine Switzer, who was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon with a number. Now, she was able to enter by uh, entering just her initials, KV Switzer to get her number. But once one of the uh, race officials saw that a woman was running the Boston Marathon, he you know, walked onto the course. He tried to, to shove her saying, give me your number. And uh, uh, Switzer's boyfriend kind of pushed him out of the way. And photographers riding by in a, in a truck, all of this on camera. So all of this was on you know, newspapers uh, shortly afterwards. And, you know, over time, uh, things started to relax in major races and women were allowed uh, to compete and there were women's only uh, races in the 70s or in the 80s and it uh, wasn't until the 1984 Summer Olympics that there was an actual women's marathon. All of this, by the way, Nicholas, was building up the market for running shoes and at the same time endorsements were also starting to influence the sneaker world. Before there was a Michael Jordan, there was a guy named Walt Clyde Frazier of the New York Knicks, and this is, by the way, back when they actually won games and even a championship or two. Well, uh, both Adidas and Puma uh, were starting to get the idea that, uh, you know, to sell a lot of shoes, we need to have a lot of people wear them. We needed to have a lot of players wear them. So uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had signed with Adidas. Puma was looking for uh, a big star of the day to sign with. And Walt Frazier was kind of a, he's a very extravagant player, both on the court and off. He had a, a, a fashion sense that people used to tease him about. His, his nickname, Clyde, uh, kind of came from the movie Bonnie and Clyde because he had this uh, hat that reminded his uh, players uh, of the movie. So he was very fashion conscious. 
so Puma approached him uh, with an idea uh, to have a signature shoe. Now, this would have been, you know, the first professional uh, signature shoe basketball player. Now, you think, okay, well, what about, uh, you know, Chuck Taylor? That was also a signature shoe. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't made when he was still playing in the game. It was named afterwards. So, you know, Clyde would have this very stylish uh, shoe uh, that he would wear in the games. And, of course, this is a key moment because this is around the time when sneakers started to move off of the courts, off of the playing fields, and into everyday life. People started wearing them uh, around the streets. So the Clyde shoe was very popular, especially in New York, because you had one of the biggest New York Nick players wearing a shoe that you could also buy and you know just wear with any sort of outfit. And besides that, he's a very you know fashion conscious, stylish player. So any way to emulate him that you can afford, especially the shoe, is uh, is going to sell. Indeed. And by the way, it's the first suede shoe, which I, I remember because I had one of these Clydes. My goodness, if it rained and you know New York weather, if it snowed, my Pumas, my Clydes never touched the ground. Yeah, there, there was a, uh, I think, a Puma executive who said something along the lines of, you know, we, we love it when it rains in New York because, or when it rains or snows, because that means we're going to sell a whole lot more suede shoes. Indeed. So uh, I, I don't know if it was a conscious decision uh, by uh, by the company, but, uh, you know, you have to kind of be mindful of what the weather is like if you want to keep your sneakers looking very nice. And also in the 70s, a drought and water restrictions in California gave rise to a different type of fashionable sneaker, a more durable kind that could take the punishment dished out by skateboarders. Talk about that. This is one of my most favorite surprises of the things that I researched for this book. Now, skateboarding went through several different phases. In the 50s and 60s, there was kind of a, a sidewalk surfer craze where, you know, it was uh, something that you can do was kind of like surfing, but on land, but this eventually died out. But it wasn't really until uh, the 70s and the uh, California drought in the middle of the 70s that skateboarding started to take shape as we would recognize it today. The, the reason that happened stretched back to Scandinavia, to an architect that designed a kidney-shaped pool. And another architect, very famous architect in California, saw this and brought that kidney-shaped pool to a house he was building in California. And, of course, this uh, you know, copy I eye of other developers and suddenly kidney-shaped pools were everywhere in California. So fast forward to the 1970s, you have this drought. Uh, there's not water to have in the pools, so all the pools are empty. So the, uh, the kids that are skateboarding are skateboarding because maybe the waves are flat that day. They're, they're, they come from a surfing background. And then they see these empty pools all over the city with uh, curved and sloped sides. So perfect for riding a skateboard up and down. And eventually they found that they can go very fast down these pool walls, shoot themselves up and do tricks in the air and then land. And this sort of thing was unheard of in skateboarding at the time. Tricks would be kind of, um, you know, handstands on a skateboard. This, this would be a good trick, not, uh, you know, flying through the air, turning around a few times and then landing. So as this kind of gonzo approach to skateboarding uh, happened, it started to gain more and more popularity as kind of a, an underground youth thing. But where shoes come into play is, as you can imagine, if you're going up and down pools, you know, you're going to fall, your shoes are going to take a beating. And there's this company called Vans, the, the Van Dorn Rubber Company that was based in California. 
And uh, they were famous for, you know, not making uh, mass-produced shoes that were the same everywhere. If you wanted to have a shoe in a certain pattern, they would make it for you. They, they had the, uh, the shoemaking machinery. They had the uh, retail outlets. So they were really kind of, uh, you know, completely vertically integrated. And after a while, they saw that, you know, people were demanding shoes that kind of uh, needed to hold up um, to a, a beating. They were, van shoes were tougher uh, than other shoes at the time. So skateboarders of the day kind of gravitated towards this, that, you know, it's better to buy a, uh, a shoe that was more durable than a shoe that would you know, fall apart and you would have to replace over and over. So the uh, skateboarders that were skating the pools, they... Um, you know, tended towards Vans shoes because they were tough and also because they were stylish. You can get them in you know, almost whatever color uh, that you wanted, which was, you know, a little bit unheard of at, at the time when shoes came in white, they came in black, or they came in like a dark navy blue, and that was it. So you had a combination of a uh, an underground subculture that had a very a specific demand for a shoe and also there was this fashion angle that they wanted it to you know look how they wanted it to look so this a combination of all of these different factors kind of contributed to not just the success of vans but just uh, the concept of the trendy sports shoe and more on the american sneakers story here on our american stories back with Nicholas Smith and we're talking about his book a really great read kicks about the history of American sneakers the next big influence in the world of sneakers didn't come from the sports world it came from the music world breakdancing and then soon after rap artists like Run DMC and the Beastie Boys would have their influence on the world of sneakers talk about that period so before we get to the 80s, we'll have to stretch back a decade and talk about the 70s. Now, earlier I mentioned, uh, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would have the, you know, Adidas shoe and Walt Frazier would have his Puma shoe. These shoes proved very popular in the, the budding uh, hip-hop movement. You know, as people were starting to develop uh, and invent breakdancing, people wanted to have a, a, a style all to themselves. So these breakdancing crews would often dress the same. And, you know, they would all be wearing the same pairs of Adidas, or they would all be wearing the same pairs of Nike or of the, uh, the Puma shoe. So these shoes were already kind of built in to a subculture. Now, when a hip-hop group like Run DMC comes along, they originally didn't have the uh, the style that we know them of today. They didn't have the black leather jackets, the Adidas track suits, the the hats, or the uh, the famous black and white superstar shoe. They dressed in you know kind of uncool looking plaid suits. But it wasn't until they started dressing like the uh, the Queen's neighborhood uh, that they came from that they started to kind of develop their own identity. And part of this identity came in that Adidas superstar shoe. Now, of course, if you have a very popular group, you know, wear a certain style of shoe, and if you're, you know, a fan of that group, you're 
probably going to wear the the shoe or the brand yourself. And there was a, a famous incident where they were at a, a concert in Madison Square Garden. And just before they performed their famous song about their favorite shoe, My Adidas, they asked everyone in the audience to, to hold up their shoes. And all of these Adidas shoes went in the air. Now, fortunately, an uh, executive from Adidas was in the audience, and he saw the power that, that the band had. And they were the first non-sports figures to have a shoe contract for an athletic shoe company. Let's talk about the year 1984 and Nike. It was a big year, but it was a bad year. They just posted their first ever quarterly loss. They were even into layoff mode. They needed to do something big and in the nation's biggest sport when it came to sneakers, and that's, of course, basketball and the NBA. You write about the fact that there were three big-name prospects that everyone thought Nike should pursue. John Stockton, who ended up at the Jazz, Charles Barkley at the Sixers, and Hakeem Olajuwon at the Houston Rockets. But a fourth name came up. Talk about number four, because he would help transform the company, and Nike made a big and astronomical bet on number four. Nike had shoes on players, but they didn't have shoes on the right players. And they wanted to kind of target some up-and-coming names in the 1984 draft. Now, that fourth name, Michael Jordan, they could have just offered him the same shoe contract as they were going to with, uh, with John Stockton and the others. But uh, the key point here is we're not going to uh, give Jordan just any old shoe contract like we've been giving the pros for the past couple of years. We're going to build an entire line, an entire signature shoe line and apparel line around Michael Jordan. Because they did this, and because Jordan was such uh, an electric player, they kind of invented something new. Now, of course, there was Clyde Frazier earlier, but there wasn't really the full force of a company's marketing behind one single player. One single player kind of presented as his own brand, the Air Jordan brand. And as Jordan started to get better and better, of course, people wanted to you know, know why was he so good. Uh, a couple years after they started coming out with the Air Jordan shoe, they, they wanted to try something new with the marketing. So they hired a very young director named Spike Lee to direct a series of commercials starring him as his character, Morris Blockman from his first movie, and Michael Jordan. Now, these commercials were revolutionary for the time. Other sneaker commercials starring NBA stars were a bit cheesy. They were a bit you know, they, they they didn't really sell the product as much as, you know, okay, Larry Bird is wearing, you know, this brand of shoes, so you should also wear it. But what the uh the Spike Lee and, and Michael Jordan commercials did, they were they were funny. They were lighthearted. They didn't seem quite like a shoe commercial. They were kind of a, a comedic pairing with uh, Michael Jordan acting as the straight man. Now, the big tagline from these uh Spike Lee and Michael Jordan commercials was, you know, what makes Michael so great? Is it, uh, you know, the, the way he jumps? Is it, uh, you know, his haircut? Is it, is it the shoes? And is it the shoes? This became kind of the, uh, you know, the, the seed that Nike wanted to plant in everyone's mind. Okay, well, if, you know, Michael can do all these things in the Air Jordan shoe, well, maybe the Air Jordan shoe can help you play basketball better. Maybe it can help you jump higher. So there was kind of this 
this magic that Nike was tapping into with the Spike Lee and Michael Jordan commercials. And I don't know if this was conscious of them at the time, but it's a, kind of a very old idea of the magical shoe. Now, what, uh, what makes Cinderella a princess? It's the glass slipper. What makes Dorothy come back from the land of Oz? It's her ruby slippers. What makes Michael Jordan jump so high? It's got to be the shoes. It's got to be the shoes. By the way, you, you also talk about this remarkable business deal. Jordan got royalties not only on the sale of each Air Jordan sold, but all Nike Air sneakers. What a big risk to take. But by the way, what big rewards for Jordan and for Nike, that deal? Oh, for sure. You know, without really the success he had on the court and without the success he had with Nike, we wouldn't have an entire Jordan brand spun off from Nike. It's funny, he's, you know, been out of the game for so many years, but Nike Air Jordans are, you know, still still worn by people everywhere. You know, they still come out with new uh, Air Jordans all the time. There's new versions of uh, different colors of the old Air Jordan shoes from the 80s. So it was kind of a... Uh, a unique way that really paid off for both the player and the company. Tell the story of where Nike got their new slogan, just do it, because it's a pretty unlikely source. This kind of came, you know, from the the least likely source that you can think of. There was a a murderer uh, on death row and he uh, was, you know, okay, well, what what are your last words? And they were, you know, along the lines of, okay, well, let's do this. Now, one of the executives saw this, he kind of thought, okay, well, I'll file that away. And when it became time to, you know, think up of a, a new slogan for the company, this popped into his head, just do it. You know, we know now that uh, Just Do It, it's as much a part of Nike as the, the swoosh is. So it's, it's so baked into the company's DNA that it's difficult to, to separate them. And I should also add that uh, when the uh, Just Do It slogan came out, it, it became kind of a, uh, a rallying cry, a point of pride for people. It, uh, you know, inspired them to, to do more. It inspired them to get out and exercise. Uh, there was one story where someone wrote into the company saying, I, I finally left my husband because I heard this slogan. So it, uh, it kind of, uh, again, tapped into a much greater idea uh, that was there that, you know, people sometimes need that little push. I can only guess most Americans now uh, have at least a few sneakers in their closet. We had started off this way, we'll come close to ending this way. But I look around now, Nicholas, and I mean, people are wearing sneakers almost all the time in business casual situations. I see men in sneakers routinely and women. Yeah, sneakers have kind of become the uh, the default shoe, whether we are going to the office or going to the uh, the supermarket. It's, uh, you know, what we... Uh, throw on to look nice or it's what we throw on just to have something on our feet and we can thank the uh the birth of casual friday for bringing the uh, sneakers into the boardroom indeed last thing what surprised you most telling this epic story of the sneakers i know i was sideswiped by this book and absorbed because in so many ways just as you had said early on this is the story of 20th century american culture I guess what surprised me most when I looked into it more and more, sneakers were there at so many different junctures in the 20th century. You know, even U.S. soldiers trained in sneakers going to uh, World War II. What I'm fascinated by is, let's take the Converse All-Star, for example. This is a shoe that, you know, if you're a a punk rocker, you might wear, or if you're a 
you're a teenager wanting to look hip, uh, you might wear. Or if you are, are a little bit older, may have worn in gym class many decades ago. It's a shoe that, that means so many different things to so many different people. I, I recently got back from a uh, vacation in Venice, Italy, and I saw an old nun wearing a pair of Converse All-Star sneakers, the, the Chuck Taylor shoes. So it, it's really a shoe that's, that's just become almost generic, even though it was at one time a very specialized piece of athletic equipment. Yeah, I can't think of any American fashion brand in which I actually wore Chuck Taylors and I played I played high school basketball and my daughter is wearing Chuck Taylors the old man and the daughter wearing the same exact sneaker where else in American fashion exactly and you know <laughs> that that sneaker will probably be around for a, a long long time after that well Nicholas thanks so much for your time and thanks for kicks the great American story of sneakers well thank you for having me and that was Nicholas Smith. The book Kicks, the great American story of sneakers, and it's available on Amazon. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org if you like what you hear and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You'll get the five best stories of the week. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and just sign up. And by the way, send the link to friends if you like what you're hearing. Nicholas Smith and the Sneakers Story of America. Nicholas Smith, the stories of sneakers in America. Here on Our American Stories.